This is episode 46 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with Men's Roundup 2008 with Gary Thomas. This is session three, Saturday night. I know I've really frustrated some of you because I haven't been paying attention to the outlines. Uh, I've changed these, and so some of you really don't care about this, but I, I think there's a few of you that might. So let me just make amends for that real quickly. If you care, turn to page 12. I'm going to fill them in for you real quickly. And I will try to be more conscious tonight and tomorrow and do that as we go along. Uh, Page 12 under 1B, consequences aren't always immediately apparent. That's the thing we're talking about. Adam sinned, he saw Eve sin first, waited to see if anything happened, nothing did, but that doesn't mean the consequences aren't severe. And then passivity is born in feelings of incompetency. Remember I talked about that a lot of times. Um, guys, don't get involved simply because we feel incompetent. We don't like to feel incompetent. And this one I didn't really address. This was one I cut because we were kind of going late last night, uh, although it was earlier than tonight, but uh, being a Christian man doesn't always mean being nice. And then the call to raise tough men, tough men. We'd cover that, I just didn't stress that out. Okay, general session two. Look at that, I just gave a talk in 30 seconds. Page 14. Uh, first thing is the problem of control. Remember that we have control, that can be a problem, a challenge. And then under B, the problem of influential but spiritually weak men problem of influential but spiritually weak men and the glory of authority the glory of using authority to build others up is what number three is so you can get those now we have a book to give away if you could hand me the cards the deck is getting bigger so the odds aren't as great but okay Okay, whoever smirked about my sweatshirt is ill, isn't eligible tonight. <laughs> we'll play like a champion today, right? Okay, here we go. Houston Irby. Houston Irby, you round back or something? All right. You can come up to the table afterwards and get one. Um, people keep asking, so let me go through these again real quickly. Just a couple I haven't mentioned. Sacred Pathways. Uh, what this really is designed to do is help men develop a devotional life that's based on desire and not just discipline. I just found a lot of guys were feeling real guilty because they couldn't have that standard one-size-fits-all quiet time. Can I just say something? Look around this room. Does anybody here think one shirt would fit every man in this room? Not likely. Yeah. Well, maybe a miraculous Notre Dame sweatshirt you're saying. Was that, but other than that. Um, but, um, and, and we do the same thing. We try to teach guys how you have a quiet time, how you pray, how you study the Bible, and it just doesn't fit. So this looks at nine different ways, the pathways, that men relate to God to help you build, uh, really to give you freedom to pursue God in a new way. Um, this one isn't for any of you. The pink cover should be the giveaway. Uh, sacred influence, how God uses wives to shape the souls of the husbands. 
but it could be a good gift for your wife. I've been kind of hard on you guys last night and this morning. In this book, I, I really kind of take it to wives. I plead the man's case. I'm writing as a Christian brother to Christian sisters saying, look, this is why your guy acts the way he does. This is why sex matters to him, whether he knows it or not. This is what's going on when this happens. In part because I was just getting frustrated with these books written by women for women, giving this advice that I would hear, and I'd say, only a woman could think that's going to work with a guy. And so, I've heard of guys who heard of stuff in here that gave it to their wives because they wanted to read it, but that's, that's what uh, that's about. And then tonight, um, we're talking about the beautiful fight, and I'm not going to talk about that since we'll get into it. So uh, let's pray. Father, as we've looked at this day, we put the trivial behind this, but Lord, we also lay those real serious substantive concerns. So brother, we've just prayed for the families we left at home. When we, when we sang how great you are, it, it wasn't just words to us. We believe you really are great. And though we're at the end of this day, you can make us fully alive, applying your word to our hearts. And so I pray for that gift of grace, that we could do this and honor you, Lord, with our attention. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have any of you ever coached Little League baseball teams or had a kid in a team? So... If you have, do you know what I'm talking about? When you see those middle-aged men who sort of build up their egos by creating these little league juggernauts, you know, they're the kind of guys, I mean, they're just ruthless, and somehow they find these eight-year-old pitchers who need to shave, you know, between innings, you know. It's amazing. You think, where do they get it? Well, when my, my buddy and I started coaching baseball together, when our sons got to little league age, um, we were first-year coaches, and the problem with a first-year coach is that you don't know any of the players to draft. You know, they have the drafts. You don't know any of these guys. And, and so you always get stuck with the guys that other people have passed over because these guys have been doing scouting reports from, you know, T-ball and preschool and all of that. I mean, so they know exactly who they want. And so the result is typical. When you run up against one of this team, we played this team, and it was as bad as you could imagine. If they'd kept score all the way, probably would have been about 40 to zero. We never got a runner past second base. The only reason we got a runner to first base was they committed one error. Uh, they were getting dizzy running around the bases. You know, we're giving them juice boxes. Their moms are giving them Pepto-Bismo to keep the nausea down from them being so dizzy. But here's how bad it was. Okay, this game is over. Absolute slaughter. My buddy and I were putting the mitts and the, the bats and the balls, you know, in the canvas bag, looking at each other like, okay, well, it's an experience. We lived through it. And our little right fielder, Timmy, comes up to me. And this is how clueless our guys were. Timmy comes up. He had this big smile on his face. I'm wondering, what is he smiling about? He goes, Coach Gary? Yeah, Timmy. Did we win? <laughs> I'm like, Timmy, usually you got to score a run to win or keep the other team below 100. But I, I had fond feelings for Timmy because he and I had something in common. We're both miserable baseball players. 
Growing up, I really wanted to be good. I tried so hard. I was one of those guys that would work his head off, and I was just barely good enough to make the team and never good enough to play very much. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you face that. I still feel those feelings of mortification when there's 37 seconds left in a basketball game and the coaches clear the bench and send them in. I just feel so sorry for those guys because that was my life. You know, I, I had the desire, I had the work ethic, just didn't have the natural ability. When you get up into high school and other places, there's a point where sometimes desire alone isn't enough. And I remember looking at those guys, and, and you've all seen this, guys that are so naturally gifted. They have more talent in their little finger than I have in my whole body, and yet maybe it's a lack of desire, a lack of discipline, a lack of character, and they just waste it. Have you seen those guys? You know what I'm talking about? They could go so far and they just let it slip away. And I just think, man, if I could have half your talent, what I could do with it. And so growing up with that, with my love of sports, I realized, especially in college, I don't want to do that with my faith. I want to go as far as God will let me go. If I'm going to do this thing called Christianity... I really want to press in because when I would read in the New Testament, I would look at what the Bible said is possible and it's stunning when you think what the Bible says we can be. Look at 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Have it up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles with you. But here's what Peter says. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I want to pause right there and just say that what Peter is telling us, if you really take it at face value, we shouldn't take it any other way, is that every single person in this room, if you are in Christ, has everything you need for a life of power and godliness. You lack nothing. You can be the Tiger Woods of Christianity, if you believe Peter. He goes on to say this. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. And I stop there because precious isn't a word that us guys like to use. It's a little too precious, you know? I mean, it's just, it's not how we talk. And yet, why would Peter choose that word? Think of his biography. What did Peter do? You talked about the sin, the silence of Adam last night. What did Peter do when a milkmaid, one of the lower members of society, looks at Peter, who Jesus has said is the rock upon whom he would build the church? I mean, who wouldn't like to hear that? Peter, I'm counting on you. You're my rock. And then, hours later, here's this milkmaid. Weren't you with him? What did Peter say? No. He was, I, I don't know the man. He looked at what he was, and now he looks at what he is. He realizes after Christ has died, sent his Holy Spirit, he realizes the person he's become, the spiritual strength, the stories of Peter in the first century church really can make your toes curl, the power, the influence, the authority of that man. He looks back, I see what I was, I see what I am. He goes, these are precious promises. Well, you might my language or not. This is not theory to me, he's saying. This hits me in the heart. So that through them, he says, you may, here, again, stunning, participate in the divine nature. Peter's saying the standard isn't that you become a slightly improved version of what a man should be. A little more gentle, 
a little more patient, a little more courageous, speaking up a little more often. He's saying, here's a standard. You should be partakers. In another translation, you should be partakers of the divine. He says the standard is God. He's not saying we have a divine spark in us or we have to release the divine within. That's new age thinking. What he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is so forceful and powerful and effective in our lives that when we release it, God becomes a standard. And I'll explain in a little bit more what that means. Now, when, when I read a passage like this, this is why I love going into church history because this is still kind of theory. But when you read history, you see what is done, how it's applied. I want to go back to the early 200s, just before persecution started racking the church. There was this young woman barely out of adolescence. Her name was Perpetua. The Christian faith was just growing and there was an emperor in North Africa who was uncomfortable with it and he sent out an edict that if everyone didn't offer sacrifices to him as if he were a god, they would be thrown to the beasts for sport. Now, Perpetua was everything an early third century North African woman would want to be. She was well-born. It was a class-based society. She was at the top. She was well-married. She was wealthy. She had kids. Everything a woman would want to be at that time. And she was also a Christian and made it very clear that she couldn't follow the king's edict. So she was visited by her father who pled with his daughter, please don't bring this shame on my head. I can't bear to see my daughter torn apart by wild beasts. You'll bring disrepute on our household. What about your husband? What about your child? You can't do this. She pointed at a ceramic pitcher that was in the room they used to pour water. And she said, Father, what do you call that? He said, it's a pitcher. Can you call it anything else? He says, no, that's his name. It's a pitcher. And she said, so I cannot be called anything other than what I am. And that is a Christian. And so the die was cast. King was pretty upset at what she had done, so he ordered that she be killed by a bull. There were a lot of really ugly connotations with that, but the thing that made it particularly painful is that while a lion or a bear could kill you with one swipe of their paw, being killed by a bull was more like death by a dozen gores. It was a very gory way to die. So they sent her out there. They had first stripped her naked. The crowd was so shocked they went in and put on this crude dress and brought her back out. The bull had had his way with her for a while and even a bloodthirsty crowd, the kind that would actually come to see somebody torn apart by animals, even they had had enough and they appealed to the emperor, finish her off. So he called out for the gladiator. That's his job. Now here comes a hardened killer, a man trained to dispense with guys four times the size of Perpetua. And yet he faltered. We don't know if it was her eyes, the gaze of her cat. We don't know what it was, but he struck Perpetua and didn't kill her. And now the crowd was, they, they were getting sick. They couldn't believe it. They were just disgusted. Now Cash says, Perpetua looks up and she sees how everybody is horrified. She takes mercy on them. She feels sorry for these people who have come to see her torn apart by wild animals. So she grabs the gladiator's sword and guides it to her neck so he can finish the job. 
Now, when word got out to the early church about her courage and her compassion in the face of torture, she became so well-respected that early church fathers had to put out words not to treat her journals and writings as scripture. That's how highly respected she was. Here is this young, seemingly nondescript woman, barely out of adolescence, that God used to energize and prepare the church for the age of persecution because she was radically transformed in a way that went beyond all sense. She wasn't just an improved woman, she looked like a partaker in the divine nature. Fast forward a thousand years. Entirely different situation for the church. Now we're in the 13th century. We're in Italy. Young man by the name of Francis of Assisi. His father's pretty wealthy. Some of you may remember a movie that was made about him a number of years ago, Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, where he's in his father's uh, factory, throws out all of the clothes to the poor people, and then he walks out of town stark naked. Remember, that's why I always thought they should have called the movie Brother Moon instead of Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, but that's a different story. But, but here's a young man who seemed to have everything going for him. And to this day, most theologians would say he may be one of the top ten most influential Christians post-apostle because he challenged in the influence of the church. In Francis' day, not only were you not persecuted for being a Christian, being a Christian was the way to power. Being a Christian was the way to influence. You know, sort of like the board here of, of Roundup. That's where all the money is, right? That's where all the influence. And, and that's how it was in Francis's day. If you wanted to be the most powerful member of society, you went into church leadership. And Francis read his Bible and said, I don't see that. Jesus lived a simple life. He lived a humble life. And I see how God confronted an, a society that was at war with the church and a society that had married to the church. Now, for good or for ill, I'm kind of one of those guys that's sort of into politics. I like to follow them. I mean, never run for office, but I like to follow them. But what gives me comfort as we face an election is I've seen whatever the climate is socially, God has a way of raising up his followers to confront the need because God's power is that immense. But what it requires are believers who allow themselves to be beautifully transformed, not just improved. Now today, I think we're really in a notional age of Christianity. We're after a sort of a bill that says, sin canceled, you're free, and that's what it is, just being declared righteous. How many of you have seen this bumper sticker? Christians are like anyone else, only forgiven. T-shirts, posters, bumper stickers. It's just this cliche that just comes out. We're sinners just like everybody else. The only difference is we're forgiven. I just want to pause and say, really? Are you telling me as God gives us his scripture that if I see one man married to his wife and another man married to his wife, one is a Christian and one isn't, the Christian doesn't treat his wife any differently than the non-believer? If I see two men in attempting to, are you going to tell me the Christian shouldn't be expected to behave any differently, speak any differently, treat his kids any differently? Is, is that really what we want to say? It's just that one has had canceled on his sins, but he's really not changed at all. See, I, I think Paul would rip that bumper sticker off cars in the church parking lot. Here's why. Ephesians 4, 17-24. Here's what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Now we know all of scripture is God breathed, right? 
But what Paul is saying is, I don't want you to even think for a second, this is my opinion. I'm giving you this straight from God's heart. This is in the Lord. This is God's truth. What is it that he's so passionate about? You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You should not behave like those who have no hope and no knowledge of God. You were taught, he says, to put on the new self. And here it is again. Created, can you read those next four words with me? To be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There's that partakers of divine nature again. He said, how were you created? What has every promise been made available to you? To be like God. God. And I know some of you think I'm skating really close to heresy here. And all I'm doing is quoting scripture. Because we have such cultural blinders on sometimes, we don't really see these scriptures for what they are. That the call to transformation is real and stunning in its depth. There's no reason anybody should be bored with a Christian faith if we really take it at face value. And that's why I wrote The Beautiful Fight. I think it came with a call. And I don't understand why God gave it to me because there are so many people that have a bigger platform that can say it better. They have better hair. They're on TV. They're on the radio. But, but here's what I think God is saying to the church. I want you to test this. I'm not saying thus say the Lord. I don't talk that way. You know that. But here's what I think. And if we could bring up this slide. I want you to consider this. That I believe God wants to raise the level of expectation for his presence and activity in the life of every believer. Amen. That it becomes a more common expectation that God's presence is real, effective, and active in every one of our lives. It's not just about belief. It is about real transformation. So where do we go? Where do we go? I mean, the, the, the task is so large when we look at this. You might feel sort of like a mosquito in a nudist colony. You know you know what to do, you just don't know where to get started. You know, there, there are so many places you could go. Probably don't need to be putting that image in your mind at night, but... Here's what I think we have to leave behind. There's this human-centered faith that I think is very well-intentioned. If you grew up in the 80s, you probably had one of these bands. Some of you may be wearing it tonight. And I think I understand where it's coming from, but here's why I think it's dangerous. How many of you remember this question, what would Jesus do, right? That's how we become more holy. We think, what would Jesus do? Well, what's the problem with that? Here's the danger, I think, behind it. It risks making Jesus a memory. As if he's just a historical figure. God created the world, sent his son, and then left us a book. And Christianity is about pulling out these timeless principles that we try to apply. Well, if Jesus were alive, then, then maybe this is how he would act. And so I will try to act this way. It's all about human understanding, human effort, and human Im imitation. And if any of you have tried that, you know how powerless that is. Because there isn't a man here that is able to be a very good imitator. When we're called to be like God, we try and we try and we try and we fail and we fail and we fail. It's stuck on the incarnation. The incarnation is true. Jesus, the incarnation simply means Jesus came and he was in flesh. He came in flesh. But that's not where the New Testament narrative ends. He doesn't live just as a model, as an example. The Bible says he died 
rose from the dead, and then ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, he sat down to reign. And the ascended form, he's not limited to one human body. See, when he walked on this earth in the incarnate form, he had two eyes. He had one tongue and two ears at the right hand of the Father, sending out his Holy Spirit. He has millions of eyes through his church in Asia, in Africa, in Russia, even here in Oregon. He's got millions of tongues. He is working. He is building through his church. The correct question isn't what would Jesus do, but what is Jesus doing now? And even more appropriately, through you. It's really the faith that Paul lived. Look at this, Galatians 2.20. Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Colossians 1.29, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Now I read these passages, they struck me as inordinately, incredibly powerful. What would it mean to feel Christ's energy working through me? So I open up my evangelical commentaries. You know, they don't even address it. It's like it's not even entering our mind. It sounds too mystical. It sounds too, I don't know, ephemeral, whatever. We just go back to this imitation thing. We settle for so little when we look at what Scripture says. So I had to read, in, by the way, for your outline. Okay, here we go. To Paul, for your underline, to Paul, Christ wasn't a memory but a living reality. Christ wasn't a memory, but a living reality. It's not just that he lived. Paul, he was as present with Paul as when his feet literally got dirty on the streets of Jerusalem. So to understand what these verses meant, I actually had to go to an Eastern Orthodox monk. Here's what he wrote. I think this is such a powerful passage that the evangelicals, frankly, just skirted. Here's what he says. Not only Paul, if we could bring that, yeah, thank you. Not only Paul, but the author of the book of Revelation, the Alexandrian exegetes, martyrs like Ignatius of Antioch and Perpetua, and many others have witnessed to the spiritual Christ, to the actual charismatic presence of the Lord as the great fact behind the whole Christian movement. In other words, it's not people trying to imitate Christ and so the church grows, but Christ building the church by him, through himself, through his church. Do we believe as intensely in the reality of the spiritual Christ? We in our day should become more vividly aware of the absolute reality of his presence to open our eyes and ears more readily to the deeds and words of the spiritual Christ. The Christ of the Spirit is no figure of speech, no mere symbol of a surviving influence. He is forever alive and present. Doesn't that sound like an exciting faith? And then you compare that to what would Jesus do? Where do we want to go tonight? I want to open up an entirely new realm. Now, what does this mean? Jesus wasn't a museum showpiece that we leave in history and try to look at and emulate. And we are not to become museum showpieces. The way we look at holiness, I think, has been so ineffective and we're losing a lot of our young people because of it. There's two different ways you can look at holiness. You see this on your outline. There's static holiness and dynamic holiness. Static holiness, again, outline alert for those of you who want to fill it out. Static holiness is I focus on what I shouldn't do. Right? I focus on what, that's static holiness. How many of you grew up with that? I did. 
I'm holier than you because I don't do more things than you don't do, right? Don't drink, smoke, or chew. Go out with girls who do. I mean, and that's pretty much what it means. What it means to be holy is there's a whole list of things that I would never do. And because I never do it, that makes me holy. There's a real problem with static holiness, and that's reality, okay? James 3.2 couldn't be clearer. James 3.2 says this, we all stumble in many ways. Think about it. We all stumble in many ways. Now, if you're not familiar with James, he was literally the brother of Jesus Christ. They obviously didn't have the same father. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but they both had the same mother. So Jesus grew up with James. Now, a lot of us think we're okay in transformation, that we don't stumble so badly because we compare ourselves to others around us and they don't seem to be doing so well. Well, compared to them, I'm probably doing okay. Imagine the frustration. Imagine sibling rivalry when your brother is literally perfect. I, think, I can just see it. You know, James is like, Mom, Jesus pushed me. No, he didn't, James. We don't. We caught you on that one. Now you're lying. Now you're going to get in trouble. I mean, James had no way out. And he said, look, I have seen a perfect man. I've lived with a perfect man. Perfect in attitude. Perfect in actions. Perfect in every way. Trust me, you and me, we stumble in many ways. When you see God, when you see a real partaker of the divine nature, don't even try to pretend you're there. You and me, we stumble in many ways, he says. So we try to define holiness to our young kids that they don't stumble in many ways. And scripture promises them they'll stumble in many ways. And here's how Satan's picking them up. Now, I have three teenagers. This isn't theory to me. This is reality. I see Satan doing this. He's at war with the church in this way because he goes to a young man or young woman that feels called to the church and then they think, I must not be called because I stumble in many ways. And I know if I was holy, I wouldn't stumble because that's what the church keeps telling me. I stumble in many ways. I must not be qualified for service in God's church. And here in context, James is literally talking to teachers. To teachers. We teachers, he says, all stumble in many ways. So holiness has to mean something different than people who don't stumble. That's what brings us to dynamic holiness. You've heard these verses already. You heard them last night. Uh, they're key. If we could bring them up again. Acts 13. That David was known as a man after God's own heart because he did everything God wanted him to do. That Jesus brought his father glory by completing the work he gave him to do. That Paul says, I have not been disobedient to the vision given me from heaven. These men, their holiness was marked by the fact that they were involved in this beautiful fight. They saw the fight of faith. God gave them a task. God gave them a pursuit. And their life was oriented around fulfilling this task and getting involved in this pursuit. And I hear so often today, so many, it's become a cliche. You've probably heard so many teachers say this. Christianity is about doing, it's about being. I want to say, who says? Because I don't think the Bible does. Because here's what I found. What keeps us in being is having that beautiful fight. It's what sets us into training. We give up. What, I'm not saying sin doesn't matter. I'm saying focusing on not sinning is just not very effective. But what happens if we can enroll ourselves in a glorious fight 
that takes all of our imagination and we see the glory of it, we begin to be so involved in that fight that we lose gradually over time the taste for that sin. We just don't have the time in many ways. Trying to maintain ourselves as a museum showpiece outside of this faith just simply isn't very effective because all my effort is on trying not to do something when it's so much more effective to focus on what can I do. And so if I want to follow this model of this transformation of becoming partakers of divine nature, Jesus ascended at the right hand of the Father. Here's what it means. My eyes now become God's eyes. Now this, I'm, I'm running out of time here. You guys have been up late, so I can't get into it. But this, this is what I'm trying to do in the glorious, in the beautiful fight, is really give us a vision. What does it mean that every day I wake up and say, Lord, these eyes are your servants? And not, it's not just trying not to look at things that aren't appropriate, but how do I notice people who need to be noticed? How do I see things that others are ignoring? Lord, ears, these ears, I, I want them to be used, I want them to be attuned to your voice so that I can hear you speaking to me. I want this tongue to be your servant, to build up, to encourage, to comfort, to exhort, to convict. Whatever you need to do, I give you this tongue. And yet we look at holiness as don't say this word. We particularly young people don't say these words. Kids, don't listen to this music. Don't look at those sites on the internet. And, and look, I don't want my kids to look at those sites. I don't want them to use those words. I don't want them to listen to those lyrics. But it's far more effective to say, offer up the members of your body as God's active servants. Here's an example. My son was at a camp. I wasn't there, but uh, some of the leaders that were there told me about it, how a young woman had stepped out in ministry and it was not going well for her. She was on the borderline of humiliation. I mean, it was just uncomfortable. She stepped up. It wasn't going well. I said, Gary, I wish you could have seen your son because he stepped in. They said, we just saw... He, he used some self-deprecating humor to sort of lift the pressure off of her. And then he led the group right toward God. There was a time of worship. It's it just amazing to see how he used it. And I like to say that my son having God use his ear, saying, Graham, you got to... You got to do something. This isn't going well. Seeing what's going on. Then God using his tongue, leading the group into a new direction, did far more to enlist him in the faith than five years of lectures about, Graham, don't say this, don't look at that, don't do that, don't touch that, don't speak those words. We've got to enlist our kids in the glorious fight. But we're so afraid of works, right? What I'm saying has nothing to do with trying to earn our salvation. I'm so far from being able to do that. It's not even in my mindset. But I'm thrilled that God lets me be in the fight. That every day when I walk into a Starbucks, I can bring Jesus to that Starbucks. When I walk into my house, I can bring Jesus with me into that house. I can say, Jesus, am I missing something with my kids that you're really concerned about and I'm too busy and I don't see it? What words can I offer to build up my wife, to challenge my kids? Lord, how would you use me? And when your life takes on this tenor, it becomes this incredible, beautiful fight. It comes from 2 Timothy 4.7. Paul says, I fought the good fight. That's really not strong enough. For Paul, it was this glorious cause that he was a part of. And when he talks about the beautiful fight, he's not talking about abstaining from pornography or not eating dope, you know, Dunkin' Donuts for breakfast or getting drunk on Jerusalem juice. He, he, he's talking about, I found a cause that has so captured my imagination. 
I'm not going to get involved in civilian affairs. I, I just don't have time for those lesser things. And, and the thing that's curious to me is that we've also tried to make Christianity sound so easy. Look, it's really tough. It really is. When you get involved, not only are the forces of hell unleashed against you, you have the whole forces of our society that will ridicule you and do everything they can to make you look like an idiot and a throwback to another age. But we try to say, well, come to God and actually all your problems will be solved. You know what? I found a lot of people, their problems increased tenfold when they became Christians. But I think if we're trying to appeal to people, that actually is part of the appeal. In my 40s, my family has real chubby jeans, if you look at my ancestors. And it was one of those things that a lot of us face where nothing dramatic, but boy, every year, two or three pounds. And I, that, that's kind of what got me into the whole marathon thing, because I just realized, man, this is just not going to work. I'm just going to let it go. Obviously, though, starting that in your 40s and trying to lose weight in the process, I was getting injured all the time, kept going back to the doctor, and then he finally gave me the speech, you know, Gary, you're in your mid-40s now, you might want to think about something else, maybe riding bikes. So I changed doctors, found another one that... <laughs> They wouldn't give me a lecture. I found a former marathoner. And, and even, you know, my, my wife said to me one time, well, Gary, why don't you, you do just the half marathons? You can walk down the stairs when you finish one of those. You don't have to go down backwards. And I'm, I said, because I don't fear them. The draw to me in the marathons is the struggle, and that's part of it, but it's the struggle put in a larger context. Here's how messed up I can be. I get sentimental and fond of porta-potties. Hey, is there anything dirtier and more disgusting and smellier than porta potties? No, probably not. But tell me, if you're a middle-aged guy and you're a hot summer day and you're chugging down the water because you're running out and you're so thirsty and you see that blue box off in the distance with the white roof, you, you, salvation is at hand, all right? I mean, you're, you're looking for that, you're running for that, you're, you're gunning for that. It's a dirty, smelly thing, but it's part of a more noble. So in fact, right before a marathon, that's where everybody lines up. 50 people long is trying to get into the next one. You're just so thrilled to get into that stinky, dirty place. You can't wait to get in there before you start the race. And so that's how I look at these temptations and why I have to say no to discipline things. Why I have to say no to not spending my money on things that aren't appropriate or not looking at things that wouldn't be appropriate to look at or listening to things or doing things. It's not for the sake of being a museum showpiece. I'm training for the race. I want to be God's. I want to run. I don't want to leave it on the table like these incredibly gifted athletes did that only have memories that were never really fulfilled. It's a transformation on the run. And what I found, not immediately, but over time, as I'm running that race and pursuing that fight, I'm stumbling in different ways. Some of those things that plagued me so long have fallen off because I just don't have time. They just don't come to mind because I'm so geared, I'm so focused on what I have to do. So, if you don't like what I'm saying, you can try to be a museum showpiece. I would just say, how's that doing for you? Or you can try to get involved in the beautiful fight and see perhaps if that doesn't draw you. Here's what I want to do. I, I want, I, and I hope this men's retreat can do this, is really create peer pressure to raise transformation to a new level. I was in, I've, I have this goal. I want to run in all 50 states. I've hit, I think, 42 last I checked. 
I was close to one state last year. I was only about a 45-minute drive away. I had never run in that state, so I drove into the state, parked my car so I could go for a run in that state. And the thing that struck me, it's a beautiful state. These homes were incredible. Each had about an acre of yard around them and everything, but I noticed that everyone there was decidedly unfit. And, I, and I'm not talking about a little unfit. I'm talking few decades past. It, it was everyone. I mean, I was just, it was just me. I'd get these funny looks jogging through these towns, and I kind of figured out this probably isn't a place where a lot of people jog. It just seemed like it was there. And I started to think, maybe I'm just, you know, I got to lighten up a little bit. You know, I felt like I, I'm doing okay. Well, a couple months later, I went and did um, a marathon in Minnesota, and it's a marathon that pays the winners, so they draw the Ethiopians and the Kenyans. And I was at the hotel with some of these guys, and I got in an elevator with one of the elite marathoners. Have you ever stood next to one of these guys? The guy was my height, about six feet tall, 130 pounds. I mean, there was nothing there. And I'm looking, I said, Gary, you got to hit the salads, man. What's your problem? I mean, a couple weeks after that, they released this study that showed the single greatest determining factor of your weight right now is the person you live with. If they start to lose weight, you're going to be tempted to lose weight. And out of that, it's the office where you work and then the community that you live. The environment has a huge impact because when you're around people, you, that's what you begin to describe as normal. That's where the average meter goes. And I think what has happened in the church is that we've taken this notional view of faith. My sins are forgiven. Fine. It's okay. As long as I don't do more things than they don't do, then, then I'm doing all right. And we've completely lost this. And so, you know, it's, it's a great time of year to say that because if you're a football fan like me, I mean, you just can't wait to hear those glorious six words on a Monday night. Are you ready for some football? I mean, you guys know what I'm talking about. You just... You, let me say tonight, before we close, are you ready for some faith? I mean, some real gut-wrenching faith. Is there a Francis here? Is there a Perpetua here? A young man that will really rise up and say, you know what, I'm only 17, 16, 18, 19, 20, 21. I, I really want to try. How far can I go? Can I be like Tiger Woods, who before he came, you won one or two tournaments a year, you were considered an incredible golfer. Tiger rewrites the book and says, you know what, there's a whole lot more possible than that. And, and that's the call to young people. But let me talk to us middle-aged guys for just a second. I'm about to close here. But just here's why transformation is so essential for us. I was talking to a group of teenage boys and I was honest with them. I said, look, lust is going to be a daily, if not an hourly battle for you right now. With all the hormones, the world you live in, the environmental situations, it's going to be really tough. But here's the hope we have to give them. But, I said, if you will learn to offer your eyes as God's servants, to look at women as God looks at them, to think about them with your brain as God thinks about them, to feel about them in your heart as God feels about them. I said, over time, not overnight, but over time, the day can come when it's just as difficult for you to have an inappropriate sexual thought about a woman than it is for you now not to. Because when you live in the presence of God and you're cultivating that presence, you've got to shut everything down. You've got to pretend God's not looking, that he's not there, that they're not his eyes. You've got to blind your mind and your eyes and shut down your heart. Now, it's possible to do that. But they need to see that hope. 
So I'm calling out the young ones here to take on this challenge. And the middle-aged and older ones here, show us what we can be. Show us what it's like to walk intimately with Christ five or six decades. To the world, you might look like you're wasting away. Let us see the beauty and the strength and the courage of a man who has really found faith. Let me raise this again. I believe, if we could bring that last slide up, please. I believe God wants to raise the level of expectation for the presence and activity of God in the life of every believer. Let's pray. Father, where this call is true, I pray that each man couldn't let it go. It would be so easy for us to hear this call, be momentarily unsettled, and then fall back into, well, what does it really matter? God's forgiven my sins anyway. Why put in all the effort? Lord, what a glorious life you've called us to. Give us a holy discontentment that we would not settle for less.